This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem-based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Callie E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Contracts Lectures. This is Lecture 11, and in this lecture, we'll be discussing the UCC Perfect Tender Rule and the seller's right to cure. So first, discussing material breach versus immaterial breach. Under the common law, a buyer may terminate a contract and his obligation to pay for what he has agreed to buy only if the seller materially breaches. If the breach is not material, the buyer still has a remedy for damages, but he cannot terminate the contract or refuse to perform altogether. The other side of material breach is substantial performance. If a non-breaching party asserts a material breach on the part of the other party, the breaching party most commonly defends with the argument of substantial performance. For example, a seller agrees to sell a home and also agrees before the sale to paint the house and clean all the carpets. As of the day of closing, the house has been painted and five of six carpets have been cleaned. The seller has substantially performed. Her breach in not cleaning one of the six carpets is immaterial, and the buyer will have to close the purchase. The buyer can, of course, recover the cost she incurs in having the sixth carpet cleaned, but she cannot avoid the contract entirely. How do you protect your buyer client to allow the buyer to walk away from the purchase of the home if all of the carpets are not cleaned. Instead of framing the cleaning of the carpets as an obligation, you frame it as an express condition. That is, quote, buyer's obligation to close is expressly conditioned upon sellers cleaning each and every carpet in the house prior to closing, end quote. Express conditions must be strictly complied with. Substantial performance 
will not do. And the perfect tender rule. Having set forth the common law general rule that only a material breach gives rise to the remedy of terminating the contract and discharging the non-breaching party from his obligation to perform. Of course, there's an exception. Even under the common law, when goods are involved versus land or services, the buyer had a right to terminate the contract and was discharged from his or her obligation to pay the purchase price if the goods tendered did not perfectly conform to the contract. In other words, with regard to goods, a buyer can reject the goods even for an immaterial defect or immaterial breach. This is known as the perfect tender rule. Section 2-601 provides that if the goods or the tender fail in any respect to conform to the contract, the buyer has the right to reject the goods and terminate the contract in which event the buyer is discharged from his obligation to pay for the goods. There are limitations. Section 2-602 sets out rules governing a buyer's rightful rejection of goods. Once a buyer rightfully rejects goods, sections 2-6022, 2 603 and 2-604 impose certain duties upon a buyer with regard to the rejected goods. The second limitation on the buyer's absolute right to reject is found at Section 2-508, which gives the seller a right to cure in certain circumstances. The seller's right to cure is a significant limitation on the buyer's right to reject a good for any non-conformity. The third limitation on the perfect tender rule relates to installment contracts. And a fourth limitation on the perfect tender rule is the effect of buyer's acceptance of non-conforming goods. Once a party has accepted the goods, the right to reject for any non-conformity disappears. After acceptance, if a buyer discovers a non-conformity, acceptance can be revoked only in certain circumstances. Finally, in rejecting goods, a buyer is subject to the obligation of good faith, as set forth in Section 1-304. Now moving to timing and notice of rejection. Section 2-602-1 requires a buyer to reject goods within a reasonable time after their delivery or tender and to seasonably notify the seller of the rejection. If the buyer fails to reject within a reasonable time or to seasonably notify the seller of her rejection of the goods, she is deemed to have accepted the goods. After acceptance, a buyer is precluded from rejecting the goods and can only, quote, revoke acceptance, unquote, which is much more difficult to do than rejecting the goods. Section 1-205 states, that what is reasonable, quote, depends on the nature, purpose, and circumstances, end quote, in the particular matter. Notice is seasonable if, one, taken within the time agreed, or, if no time is agreed, two, within a reasonable time. Section 1-202D states that a person notifies another person, 
quote, by taking such steps as may be reasonably required to inform the other person in ordinary course whether or not the other person actually comes to know of it, end quote. Comment 1 to section 2-602 adds that reasonable time must be understood in connection with the buyer's right to inspect the goods, as set forth in section 2-513. Now moving to the seller's right to cure. The seller's right to cure, set forth at UCC section 2-508, is a significant limitation on the buyer's right to reject a good for any non-conformity. The extent of a seller's right to cure depends in part upon whether the time for seller's performance has expired. A seller has an absolute right to cure under section 2-508-1 if the time for delivery has not yet expired. For example, a car dealer has delivered the car the buyer ordered three days before the agreed-upon delivery date of May 1st, and it is the wrong color. In this situation, the car dealer has the right to deliver to the buyer by May 1st a car which is the right color if the following two conditions are met. A. The seller notifies buyer of its intent to cure and B. The seller in fact cures within the time for performance by making a conforming delivery. Section 2 5082 sets forth the conditions under which a seller may cure a non-conforming tender after the time for seller's performance has passed. Now moving to installment contracts. Recall the default rule of UCC section 2-307 stating, quote, unless otherwise agreed, all goods called for by a contract for sale must be tendered in a single delivery, end quote. An installment contract is one where the parties have contracted around the default rule. It is a contract which, quote, requires or authorizes the delivery of goods in separate lots to be separately accepted, end quote. For example, if a sawmill agrees to provide 10,000 feet of lumber to a hardware store per month for a period of 12 months, the parties have entered into an installment contract, even if they try to call it something else. The perfect tender rule generally does not apply to installment contracts. It is much more difficult for a buyer to cancel an installment contract. Section 2-6122 governs when a buyer can reject a single installment. And Section 2-6123 governs when the buyer can reject the entire contract, including any remaining installments. Where the nonconformity relates to documents, the buyer can reject an installment for any nonconformity, subject to the seller's right to cure if appropriate documents are readily procurable. Comment 4 gives as examples of nonconforming documents the absence of insurance documents, under a CIF contract, falsity of a bill of lading, or a bill of lading failing to show shipment within the contract period or to the contract destination. 
Section 2-6122 sets forth the general rule that a buyer may reject a single installment only if, one, the nonconformity substantially impairs the value of that installment, and two, the nonconformity cannot be cured. If a single installment is nonconforming and the nonconformity does not substantially impair the value of that installment, the buyer must accept it, regardless of whether the seller offers to cure the nonconformity. The buyer has a remedy for damages for the breach. If there is a substantial impairment to a single shipment, there is an obligation on the part of the seller to give adequate assurance of a cure. If adequate assurance of a cure is not forthcoming, the buyer can reject the installment, but not necessarily the entire contract. Comment 5 notes that adequate cures may consist of an allowance against the price or of a further delivery. If the seller gives adequate assurance of a cure, then the buyer must accept that installment, even though its value is substantially impaired, unless the nonconformity is so great that it substantially impairs the value of the whole contract. Section 2-6123 allows the buyer to reject the entire contract, including future installments, when a nonconformity with respect to one or more installments substantially impairs the value of the whole contract. Comment 6 notes that, quote, defects in prior installments are cumulative in effect, end quote. The buyer must seasonably notify the seller of the cancellation. And what is a substantial impairment? This is UCC terminology for material breach. Comment 4 indicates that factors to consider include the quality of the goods, time, quantity, assortment, and the like. And can the norm substantial impairment be determined by the agreement of the parties? Yes. Comment 4 indicates that the agreement may require accurate conformity, but must have some basis in reason, must avoid imposing hardship by surprise, and is subject to waiver or to displacement by practical construction. For example, you could define substantial impairment in the contract to include a deviation in quantity exceeding 5%. Now moving to the buyer's duties in the event of rejection. After a buyer rightfully rejects goods, the buyer has certain duties as set forth in sections 2-602 through 2-605. The principal purpose of these provisions is to prevent waste. Under section 2-602-1, after rejection, any exercise of ownership by the buyer with respect to the goods or any commercial unit thereof is wrongful as against the seller. If a buyer does exercise ownership, what is the result? Many courts treat an exercise of ownership as an acceptance, giving rise to the corresponding obligation to pay for the goods. For example, a company which rejects a copy machine as non-conforming 
may not then use the machine to make 60,000 copies. Not all uses constitute an exercise of ownership, which is wrongful as against the seller. Sometimes the seller puts the buyer in a situation where the buyer has no choice but to use the rejected goods. For example, if a seller installs non-conforming carpet and after receiving notice of the buyer's rejection fails to remove it, the buyer's continued use of the carpet is not wrongful. Under Section 2-602-2B, if the buyer has not paid for the goods and is in possession of the goods at the time of rejection, he must hold the rejected goods with reasonable care at the seller's disposition for a time sufficient to permit the seller to remove them. Reasonable care and sufficient time are questions of fact, determined in part by the nature of the goods. For example, vegetables should not be left to sit in the hot sun if the buyer has refrigerated storage available. If the buyer has paid any portion of the price, the buyer has a security interest in the goods and has certain remedies, such as the right to resell the goods, as set forth in Section 2-711. Section 2-603 imposes additional requirements on a merchant buyer in possession of rejected goods. If the seller has no agent or place of business at the market of rejection, a merchant buyer is under a duty after rejection of the goods in his possession to follow any reasonable instructions of the seller with respect to the goods. In the absence of such instructions, the merchant buyer must make reasonable efforts to sell the rejected goods for the seller if they are perishable or threatened to decline in value speedily. The merchant buyer who sells goods is entitled to reimbursement from the seller or out of the sale proceeds for reasonable expenses of caring for and selling the goods, including a reasonable commission not to exceed 10% of the gross proceeds. Under Section 2-604, even if the goods are not perishable, if the seller gives no reasonable instructions as to the disposition of the rejected goods, the buyer may store the rejected goods for the seller's account or reship them to the seller or resell them for the seller's account with reimbursement for reasonable expenses. This section is not limited to merchant buyers. Section 2-602 states that a rejection is ineffective unless the buyer reasonably notifies the seller. Additional notice requirements are set forth at Section 2-605. This section requires that the buyer identify the particular defect upon which the rejection is based. Failure to provide notice of a particular defect precludes the buyer from relying on the unstated defect to justify rejection or to establish a breach if the seller could have seasonably cured the defect. And finally, between merchants, if the seller has made a request in writing for a full and final written statement of all defects on which the buyer proposes to rely, and the buyer fails to provide such statement, the buyer is precluded from relying on the unstated defects to justify rejection or to establish a breach.
And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.